You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Welcome to the 1841st edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 12th of August 2021. The editor of this edition is Sue Atchison, the producer is Joan Hogarth and your readers are Harvey Johnson and Sue Harrington-Spear. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. And we will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. So now, over to Harvey. And we begin with the headlines as normal. Bury St Edmund's woman becomes first adult in the UK to receive life-changing hearing surgery. Hospital facing incredible pressure as demand soars. Jobs bonanza? £30 million investment could bring several hundred posts. And drug deaths in Suffolk reach four-year high. A Bury St Edmunds woman is finally able to return to her call centre job after receiving vital surgery. The cochlear implant procedure, which took place at Angler Ear Hearing in Great Shelford, Cambridgeshire, was performed on the first UK adult, Diane Allen, from Bury St Edmunds, allowing her to hear clearly for the first time in years. Diane has worked as a call handler for a charity that for safeguarding reasons must remain nameless, for 25 years. Due to her hearing loss, she reluctantly had to step down from the role, but that all changed after receiving her cochlear implant. Diane said, I am so delighted with the team at Angler Ear Hearing for their support and expertise in restoring my hearing. The procedure was simple and painless, and the difference it has made to my life is amazing. I can now hear the things many people take for granted, such as birdsong, rejoin conversations and reconnect with family and friends. But the most rewarding result is that I can now go back to work for the charity I have volunteered with for so many years as a call handler. It truly is a life-changing procedure and I cannot thank Angley Ear Hearing enough. The audiology company Angley Ear Hearing is the first clinic in the UK to provide the new Marvel Advanced Bionics cochlear implant to an adult. Diane's operation was not only the first for a UK adult, but the first independent cochlear surgery for the company. Due to the large waiting list for cochlear implants through the NHS due to the pandemic, many are now opting to go privately. Nadia Abbott, audiologist at Angley Ear Hearing, said... This is a very exciting time for the team at Anglia Ear Hearing. We are now screening clients to determine whether they are suitable for cochlear implants and working with Spire Cambridge Lee to deliver this groundbreaking hearing solution for clients. Switching on Diane's implant was a proud moment for the team and we were thrilled to see Diane's reaction 
to experiencing sound again. West Suffolk Hospital has warned of the incredible pressure services are facing due to record demand on the emergency department, a lack of beds and a projected increase in COVID-19 patients. Helen Berg, Executive Chief Operating Officer at West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, told a trust board meeting on Friday that activity levels were sobering and said last month felt as bad as any winter she'd ever worked through. In papers presented to the board, she said the trust saw its highest recorded number of emergency department attendances in June at 7,752, as well as a sustained rise in those with mental health issues and in paediatrics. Delays in the emergency department due to a lack of beds were increasing, while the national and regional situation over COVID hospitalisations was a significant cause for concern. Helen said when she wrote the paper on Friday, July the 23rd, there were five COVID patients which doubled over the weekend and increased to 11 before falling to eight last Friday. NHS East of England has advised the Trust to plan for a further rise, with the potential for about 40 COVID-19 patients by the end of this month. Paying tribute to all clinical and operational colleagues, she said every day at the moment is a really, really tough slog. A plan has been drawn up to increase COVID capacity if needed, but space remained an issue. Every day for the last week, we've come into the very difficult position of patients already waiting for beds in the emergency department, she said. Every day this week, we've started on the back foot by up to 12 patients, which is a really concerning position, but also really tough because it takes you to lunchtime to start the day and start to deal with today's activity. The Bury St Edmunds Hospital is operating with three wards closed due to ongoing maintenance work to the building, which should be completed by the end of October. Helen said the pressures were being felt by NHS trusts across the country, with ambulance trusts at the highest levels of escalation, which was incredibly concerning, and there were lots of discussions about what can be done, particularly for winter. As it stands at the moment, I don't think people locally, regionally or nationally know what these solutions are because the pressure is incredible, she said. Last month, the hospital opened a new 32-bed decant ward. In the report to the board, Helen also highlighted the ways in which the Trust is trying to speed up the recovery of services after the pandemic. Staff will be able to use a mobile operating theatre in Ipswich until the end of October and every effort is being made to use local, independent sector capacity, including day case general surgery at the BMI. Several hundred new jobs could be created if a £30 million investment in a Bury St Edmunds business and logistics park goes ahead. Plans for Phase 3 of Suffolk Park have been submitted to West Suffolk Council, including a 78,822 square foot warehouse which has been pre-let to a major parcel delivery firm. Suffolk Park developer Janik said it was not yet able to confirm the delivery company's name. However, a design and access statement submitted to the planners includes a visualisation of the warehouse with Hermes branding. <laughs> this week, Janik Development Director Ben Orton said the pre-letting further endorses Suffolk Park as a distribution location. Plans for Phase 3 of the park, on land north of Fortress Way, also include two further new warehouses of 160,000 square feet and 47 
thousand square feet. Drug deaths in Suffolk have risen to their highest level for four years, sparking warnings from substance misuse service providers. There were 46 drug poisoning deaths across the county in 2020, compared to 44 in 2019, and the most since 2016. Most were in East Suffolk, 18, sorry, 19, followed by West Suffolk, 10, Baber and Mid Suffolk, 6, but only Ipswich bucked the trend as numbers fell from 15 to 5. An overall national rise to the highest level since records began was labelled a public health emergency by substance misuse service providers. In a joint statement with Turning Point Suffolk Recovery Network, Suffolk County Council said, Every drug or alcohol-related death is preventable. We know that treatment works and this is the best way to protect against drug-related deaths. And now other items from the news. Judges for the annual Berries and Edmunds Front of Garden scheme gathered this week after two challenging years of keeping the awards running. Berry and Bloom held the reception for the judges at the Guildhall to say thank you to all those who persevered to award the much-prized certificates for people's front gardens. A total of 1,486 certificates of merit were handed out this year, 73 highly commended certificates and 58 certificates to commercial properties. This compares with 1,816 certificates in 2020, 98 high commended and 27 for businesses. It's been a tough couple of years for the volunteer judges, who have until now only been able to communicate via email and Zoom meetings to cover everything from the judging process to health and safety and what makes a certificate winner. Berry and Bloom Chairman Robert Burnett thanked around 60 judges present, of which this year there were 100 in total. This year, for obvious reasons, we were not able to have the usual meeting of judges to discuss and prepare for the judging process, he said. I'm sure that this made the job more tricky, and you may well have felt some uncertainty and isolation. We felt it was important to have this party, so that you can all meet and greet and look around and see how many lovely, enthusiastic people there are in this town who are ready to give their time and energy to improve their surroundings. It is also an opportunity to show that we of Bury St Edmunds have not been beaten by this wretched virus, that we have not lost sight of what is really important, and we are ready and raring to get back to normal. And, as we wait for Anglia in Bloom to start again, one of the key reasons we do this, let us thank our lucky stars, that we live in such a lovely town. Mr Burnett thanked coordinators Lynn Wright and David Irvine, who both took up their current roles in the last two years. Certificates are awarded for overall impression, including impact and enhancement, for plants, including condition, colour and selection, and effort, including watering, edging, mowing, sweeping, care, pots and furniture. An ambitious survey has been launched to help shape the future of Bury St Edmunds Town Centre. The survey has been launched by our Bury St Edmunds Business Improvement District, BID, to find out what residents would really like to experience when they visit the town and how it might differ in 2021 to before the pandemic. The BID, which offers businesses support as well as marketing the town and organising events, wants to know what residents like and dislike most about the town centre. 
and how they think it can be best improved. It will then use this information, gathered over the next month, to advise to its 440 members and work with partner organisations, including the town and district councils, to consider the way forward based on resident opinion. Chief Executive Mark Cordell said, It's a golden opportunity to help shape the future of the town. Now more than ever, it's really important to find out why people come into the town centre. Someone who in previous years came in five days a week for work may now be working from home, but perhaps wants to come into town at different times for shopping or socialising. Shoppers may want different things too. If they have been shopping during the lockdowns, they now might want options for click and collect from their favourite town centre businesses. Others may just want to be able to sit outside of pavement tables when having a coffee or a meal. The research is being carried out with the help of People and Places, an organisation which also advises small towns. Everyone who takes part in the survey will also have a chance to win one of our five Bury St Edmunds gift card vouchers with a value of up to £100. The survey asks for suggestions about what would make people stay longer and also for views on the best and worst aspects. It also asks for suggestions on what would improve the town centre most. Mr Cordell added, There's no doubt the pandemic has changed things for everyone and we want to be able to advise our member businesses how they can respond to the changing wishes of existing and potential customers. And there is a phone number if you want to receive a paper copy and the phone number is 01284 266258. I will repeat that at the end. Thank you. Library bosses say they are delighted to see so many people back in libraries again after the relaxation of COVID-19 restrictions. Last month, Suffolk Library's The Big Catch-Up campaign was launched to encourage people to come back to libraries and participate in the diverse range of activities and events like the Summer Reading Challenge. So far, 4,600 children have signed up for the Summer Reading Challenge in Suffolk in just over two weeks. There has also been plenty of interest from new customers, with more than 3,557 registrations for a library card in July 2021, nearly 42% more than July 2019. Since restrictions were removed on July the 19th, there have also been more than 89,000 loans of books and other items from libraries. July also saw the Suffolk Library's website receive its highest number of monthly views since it was launched. And a note from our editor who says, Don't forget, the libraries have a large selection of audiobooks. Just let them know your favourite author and they will order them for you. That's very important, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. Now we've got another hot topic to do with the town centre plan. Go ahead to start joint parking plan. Two Suffolk districts have committed £41,000 to start work on a joint parking plan to improve provision over the next five to ten years. On Monday, the cabinets of Baber and Mid-Suffolk District Councils agreed to commit £20,500 each on developing the strategy. The plan aims to assess demand for car parking, its role in helping support town centres and the types of parking needed. It will look at off-street car parks, rural parking, grass verge parking and residential provision. It has been confirmed the strategy will not be about car park fees, which are set by the two councils independently. 
Phase 1, work to engage with key stakeholders and gather data, will start this summer, with a completed strategy expected to go before cabinets and full council meetings in September 22 for approval. And now, as always, we have a selection from letters. <clears throat> and the first one uh, says, name and address supplied. Uh, is headed, delighted to be highly commended. As a direct result of a letter to the organisers of the Berry and Bloom annual front gardens appraisal, we and others were paid a visit by Lynn Wright, who apologised for our effort having been overlooked, and in our case, awarded us the coveted, highly recommended certificate for which we were most grateful. She assured us that, having only recently taken over, next year's judging will be better organised. <laughs> And this one is from Richard O'Driscoll, West Road, Bury St Edmunds, who writes about the condition of our roads and paths is so appalling. I would like to add my voice to those of Mark and Bettina Scarletta, letters July the 30th, who have called for urgent action after suffering terrible injuries following a bike accident on a West Suffolk road. I am particularly familiar with their story, having briefly shared a hospital ward with Mark after I too was taken by ambulance to the West Suffolk Hospital after falling from my bike. My accident also resulted directly from a pothole on a different but equally appalling stretch of Suffolk road riddled with potholes and ruts. While my injuries were relatively minor, by comparison they did include concussion and soft tissue injuries which will require a three-month period of recovery. As a consequence, I can currently only walk with the aid of crutches and can neither drive nor ride a bike for the foreseeable future. As a keen and safe cyclist and driver, I can assure your readers that in my case every precaution was taken to ride safely on this dangerous stretch of road. However, the conditions themselves are an accident waiting to happen. I totally agree with Bettina's comments that the scale of the problem on Suffolk roads puts people's lives and health at serious risk. Sadly, I found the response of the Suffolk County Council spokesman quoted in your article to be seriously inadequate. It implied that patching up the odd pothole or marking individual holes with yellow paint was a reasonable safety measure. Nothing could be further from the truth. The conditions of many of our roads and indeed pavements, both in the towns and countryside in West Suffolk, are appalling. I have little doubt that this is a consequence of the continuing cuts to public services and expenditure that have been the hallmark of successive Tory governments and councils. However, if we are serious about protecting lives and encouraging cycling as a healthy alternative to the car, we must now invest in a serious maintenance and renewal programme for our roads. The next letter was sent in by Bury St Edmunds Quakers of St John's Street, Bury, headed, We Want Leaders to Commit to Changes. Faith groups in East Anglia are coming together to participate in a multi-faith relay pilgrimage to the COP26 United Nations Climate Talks taking place in Glasgow in November. The pilgrimage has been organised by Quakers and the Church of England. Members of Barrison Edmunds Quaker Meeting are taking part in www.multifaithpilgrimage.org and the Camino Pilgrimage, which includes Quakers and other faith groups from Devon, Somerset, the Midlands and the East of England. They will set off on the 7th of August, on the first leg of their journey, which will take them from Bury via Cambridge, Sudbury and Essex to London, where they will meet up with pilgrimages departing from the capital. 
The pilgrimage route is run in sections between meeting houses and churches, allowing participants to join in by walking, cycling or public transport for as many or as few sections as they choose. We invite anyone, whether or not they identify as part of a faith group, to join the relay to express their concern and hope that the government leaders meeting in Glasgow will commit to the radical changes needed to save the planet from looming ecological disaster. Please contact Edwin AANN1517 at gmail.com for details and timings. As Quakers, we are inspired by these words from our Book of Discipline, Quaker Faith and Practice. We do not own the world, and its riches are not ours to dispose of at will. Show a loving consideration for all creatures and seek to maintain the beauty and variety of the world. Work to ensure that our increasing power over nature is used responsibly, with reverence for life. Rejoice in splendour, the splendour of God's continuing creation. Funds are vital as Covid has struck. This is a letter from Cathy Baines, who writes via email. I read Louise Soane's letter, Berry Free Press, July the 23rd, with interest because my grandson works as an artist for Teenage Cancer Trust at their head office in London. He was on furlough for a year. He's now working two days a week at home. The Trust's main fundraiser in the past was held at the Royal Albert Hall, with artists performing freely and runners at the London Marathon also raising money, both of which haven't taken place. So you can see why the Trust needs funds more than ever. So whatever you can do to raise money, however small, will help. Addenbrooke's Hospital has a teenage cancer ward with a common room which consisted of four white walls. My grandson painted a mural on one of the walls in bright colours which cheered patients greatly. Before the pandemic, he would occasionally go into hospitals with teenage cancer wards and play the piano and get the youngsters singing. <laughs> Very nice. Isn't it? Uh, the next letter is from Julia Wakelam of Northgate Avenue, Barry St Edmunds, headed, We'll keep going until there's action. Julia says, I agree with David Yates, that is in the letters of July the 30th, we all have had enough of climate change. We've had enough of extreme weather events, of wildfires in America and Turkey and Australia, and even here in the UK, of catastrophic flooding both here and abroad, and of heat waves which in 2019 resulted in over 900 premature deaths in England. We've had enough of the seemingly unstoppable loss of animal and insect species. Frankly, the planet has had enough of climate change. But all real action, starting with the immediate cessation of all extraction of fossil fuels and the decarbonisation of our economy, happens then Malcolm Searle and I and all those many others who actually care about our future and about the survival of the human race will keep on going on and on. And so we should. Yeah, yeah. Now, Alan Budd of Nightingale Closebury writes, Where's the proof on these Latin claims? Can any of your readers help me? Gavin Williamson proposes to introduce the teaching of Latin in a few selected state schools, claiming that one of the benefits is in assisting the learning of mathematics. I have been unable to find any hard evidence to back this claim. Where can I find such rehearse? 
sorry, where can I find such research? Or is this just another classical myth? If the minister rarely wants to level up state schools, improving the pupil-teacher ratio and school funding might be a good place to start. <laughs> Latin in schools. Yes. Right. When I was at school, I was taught Latin. My only recollection is that the Latin teacher used to threaten to thrash boys with his carpet beater for cheating. Oh. Those were the days. <laughs> now back to some news items, perhaps. Okay. Uh, a pub landlady has said if it wasn't for the support of the community during COVID, her business would probably have folded. Debbie Oliver says she feels honoured to have been the custodian of the Five Bells for 25 years and to have been welcomed as an integral part of this rural community over that time. She credits locals with keeping her pub going during the difficult months of the coronavirus pandemic and the exceptional efforts of the local community have been recognised by Special Camera and, of course, his Campaign for Real Ale award. Debbie has been presented with the West Suffolk Camera Community Pub of the Year certificate. During lockdown, regulars worked tirelessly on a volunteer basis to support her and create a fabulous outside trading space, relocating the popular petanque pitch in the process. The pub's trading area has, as a result, increased by almost 50% and it is now back to its pre-lockdown 12-hour-a-day trading. Debbie said she didn't think the business would have continued without the support from the community. She added, even in the freezing cold in the winter, when they had to be outside, they still came with their coats and blankets and hot water bottles. Local camera chairman Chris Bailey made a surprise presentation to Debbie at the pub on Wednesday, August the 4th. He said, When there's a meeting of minds between a local public and the community, everyone in the vicinity benefits. This is a fine example of how a village pub can become the hub of the community. It helps breathe life into a village and brings a vibrancy, which is unfortunately missing today in many rural communities. Debbie describes the Five Bells as a traditional pub with games including pool, darts and crib. It doesn't serve food. It was a double celebration on Wednesday as the West Suffolk and Borders branch of Camera also launched their specially commissioned beer festival preview ale, Festive Ale. The ale has been brewed in anticipation of the East Anglian Beer and Cider Festival, taking place at St Edmundsbury Cathedral from August the 25th to August the 30th. And now here's some advice. <coughs> Excuse me. Take COVID-19 test if not feeling 100%. Suffolk's public health chief has urged people to take a rapid COVID-19 test if they're not feeling 100% rather than just looking out for the most common symptoms. The main symptoms of COVID-19 since the pandemic began have been a high temperature, a new continuous cough, or a loss or change in smell or taste. Public Health Suffolk Director Stuart Keeble said the extra symptoms with the Delta variant made identifying the infection more tricky and urged people to take a lateral flow test if they don't feel 100% to help combat the spread. A hospital chaplain has marked the 25th anniversary of his ordination as a priest. The Reverend Rufin Emmanuel was ordained in 1996 in Pakistan. 
and served in two parishes as an assistant parish priest before coming to England 20 years ago. He worked in hospital chaplaincy in and around London and Essex before joining the West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust last year. And a large former garden centre site in Bury St Edmunds has been bought by a furniture company, creating more jobs in the town. Direct Furniture has taken on the freehold of the old Marlowe's Home and Garden Centre premises and site in Hollow Road, outside of the town centre. Marlowe's was forced to close last year because of poor trading conditions caused by COVID-19. Direct Furniture already has a shop in the town on the Barton's Retail Park and hopes to open its new store in Hollow Road at the end of this month with a soft launch. Jonathan Carter, the Direct Furniture family business, said the new site gives them space to grow, a cafe and outdoor space. The premises measure 45,994 square feet and is set on a 3,228-acre site. Mr Carter said the new store and cafe would create jobs for at least 10 more people over the course of six months. He added, We are delighted to have found something. It's got its retail, its own park. You don't have to worry about getting stuck in traffic. The new site will mean we can talk to more brands and bring some of the other brands we had in the past back in again and get in a wider range of products and lots and lots more interesting things as the coronavirus pandemic ends. Direct Furniture is known particularly for its sofas, drawing customers from outside the area, such as London. It will continue to sell sofas alongside other furniture like beds, homeware and hopefully from spring-summer 2022 there will be an outdoor area launch for garden furniture. Mr Carter said they will also trade from Barton's retail park store for the foreseeable future. He said businesses during the coronavirus pandemic, which involved closure of their store, have been really challenging, but added, as soon as we have reopened, it's been really, really busy, which has been fantastic. People are still happy to come and spend, he said. If people have done their houses during lockdown, they want to go out and do the rest of it once shops are open. Calls are being made to set up a men's shed, aimed at stopping people becoming socially isolated or cut off from their communities in one of Suffolk's largest towns. Originally started in Australia, Ten sheds have opened up across the county in recent years and now there is a grassroots campaign in Berries and Edmonds to establish one for the West Suffolk community. Charity chiefs at Community Action Suffolk say men's sheds are a place for men and women to connect, converse, converge and create. The centres which allow communities to work together on specific work projects and interact socially with others stem from an idea originating from the other side of the world, where it was noted that men's social circles tend to revolve around their workplace. Any separation from such a circle, for instance, through redundancy, retirement or ill health, can result in feeling cut off, socially isolated and vulnerable, leading to physical and mental health problems, a lack of self-esteem and a loss of a sense of purpose. Inspired by the concept, Berry resident Andrew Caldicott is part of a group looking to set up a men's shed in the town, with an open meeting to discuss the prospect earmarked for early September. Berry St Edmunds is the largest town in Suffolk currently without a men's shed, he said. It was needed even before the pandemic, and how much more so now, given what we have all been through. 
A men's shed for Berry would be an easy-going and friendly way for anyone who has been isolated over the past year or more to re-engage with the community, reactivate a sense of purpose and enjoy themselves. And you never know, you may learn new skills and make new friends on the way. Alan Page, an ambassador for the UK Men's Shed Association, stressed that the facility is not simply about a building. The shed is really the people who take part in it, and they work together to meet the challenge of finding a venue, equipping it, and deciding what activities it will do, he said. Those interested in getting involved should contact Johnny Wood on 01473 345. Two GP practices in Haverhill have been forced to disable an online service when the surgeries are shut after warning that staff are at serious risk of burnout due to unprecedented demand. Unity Healthcare and Haverhill Family Practice said they were dealing with nearly double the amount of workload that would be considered normal for what we were extre already extremely busy practices. A letter to patients from the Haverhill Primary Care Network, PCN, noted that staff at both surgeries were routinely working more than 12 hours a day and it was not unusual for an individual senior clinician to face nearly 100 patient contracts in a single day. It said, this does mean that staff are fatigued and are at serious risk of burnout. We are sorry that this means that we are not able to give each and every one of you the time that you would like and are forced to prioritise and work in ways that may not always seem as caring and as personal as we would like. Both practices have decided to disable their facility to e-consult while they are closed. The practices are working on recruitment, retention and training of extra staff. They encourage patients to make use of the out-of-hour service via 111 for those in need of medical help. The letter said, we appreciate this will be the cause of some frustration, but there is simply not the capacity to cope and maintain patient safety. The practices are working on recruitment, retention and training of additional staff, and although there are more GPs working in Haverhill than a few years ago, the PCN said it must stop the cycle of GP practice staff burnout and departure that has previously blighted the town. It added, please do not be put off consulting you have serious or worrying health concerns. It urged, urged residents to be kind and patient with practice staff who had worked obscenely hard through the pandemic. Repeatedly hearing, in person or online, about how useless we all are is hardly inspiring for staff, many of whom are nearing the end of their tether, it said. It asked patients to consider the impact of hospital pressures on the practices make use of community pharmacists to help with minor illnesses, use the NHS app to manage repeat prescriptions, and use the e-consult section, I want to help myself. Author Tony Rushmer is calling on people in the Berry St Edmunds area to assist with his research into SAS original Reg Seekings. Seekings was born just outside Ely in 1920 and went on to join the Cambridgeshire Regiment, 7th Commando, and when it was first formed in 1941, the SAS. But it is Seeking's 1945 marriage to a Stanton girl and the later years of their respective lives in the village towards the end of the 20th century that Rushmer is asking local people for help with. Reg Seeking's married Monica Smith, who was born in Bury St Edmunds in 1945. 
in the early 1980s until their respective deaths in the second half of the 1990s, they lived in Stanton and their graves are in the village cemetery, said Tony. I would love to meet anyone who knew Reg and Monica in those times. Similarly, if there are members of Monica's family that can give details of how the couple first met and their 50-plus years of life together, I would also be extremely grateful if they got in touch with me. He can be contacted by email at tony.rushmer at btinternet.com or call 07702-579382. Comrades reunited at Minden Day. Servicemen and veterans were joined by the Bury St Edmunds community to mark Minden Day at Gibraltar Keep. Every year on August the 1st, army units remember the Battle of Minden, when a joint Anglo-German force defeated the French in 1759. Sunday's reunion included a march past of old comrades, face-painting, military vehicles, uniforms and equipment, the Glen Mariston Pipe Band, City of Ely Band and Old Coldstream Corps of Drums. Ian Robinson, one of the event organisers, said they were really pleased with the turnout. Last year was the first year anyone can remember there wasn't a Minden Day event, so it was important for us to re-establish it, said Ian. It was an opportunity to meet up with old comrades and catch up. Unsurprisingly, everybody seemed really ready for it. We had some really positive feedback and we'll take that on board. And to round off our recording for this week, we have three feature articles to bring to you. Uh, the first of which is by local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor. And is headed Town's Poignant Reminder. Today it is normally surrounded by parked cars and stalls on market days. But the South African War Memorial on Cornhill still looks no different from yesteryear. This splendid memorial to the South African War often referred to as the Boer War Memorial, is by Arthur George Walker. Responsible for several war memorials, perhaps Walker's finest work is that of Florence Nightingale in Waterloo Place, London. Here, in Bury, the statue was unveiled by Lord Methuen upon the auspicious date of the 11th of November 1904. Assisting in the ceremony were Archdeacon Hodges and the Marquis of Bristol. A volley of rifle fire to the 193 men from the Suffolk Regiment listed on the memorial echoed around Cornhill. On the north panel of this stone rectangular island tomb, now grade 2 listed, is a Latin inscription, Vulneratus non victus, which translates to wounded, not vanquished. A further inscription below reads, This monument was erected by Suffolk people as a memorial to Suffolk soldiers, who lost their lives in the South African War, 1899 to 1902. On the coffin lid is a bare-headed soldier, seated in a defensive posture, grasping a rifle, with his fallen helmet lying on the rocks below. A rededication took place in May 2002, when the names are recut to the men who made the supreme sacrifice thousands of miles away. Unfortunately, over the years, the bronze figure has bled, causing an unsightly green stain. Stain. Evacuation memories preserved at railway station. Uh, this is an interesting article, really about East Anglian history. 
Two large panels featuring memories of the wartime evacuation of Lowestoft school children have been unveiled at a special reunion event at the town's railway station. The Lowestoft Central Project, together with the Wherry Lines Community Rail Partnership, worked with the Lowestoft Evacuees Association to create the boards which will help to preserve the story of Lowestoft's evacuation day. In June 1940, some 3,000 children from Lowestoft and the surrounding area were evacuated on a series of special trains, departing the station for small towns and villages in Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire. At the time, Lowestoft was under serious threat of both bombing and invasion, and the government ordered the evacuation of over 3.5 million children away from the coast. 600 of those evacuated in 1940 found safety in and around the town of Glossop and over several years in association with the Friends of Glossop Station. Annual reunion events have taken place with information celebrating this unique bond between the communities uh, installed at each station. As well as featuring memories on the evacuation day, the panels which were designed by James Mingy contain a personal letter written in 1940 from a Mrs Boffy to the mother evacuee Clive Capps, then aged seven. She cared for him at her farmhouse near Cresswell in Derbyshire and wrote to reassure his mother. The installations also contain details of the schools evacuated and an image from the Burt Collier collection depicting the bombed-out Lowestoft Central School, providing a graphic reminder of the severe dangers posed with the children to have stayed at home. The special panels have been produced by Community Rail Development Officer Martin Halliday. He said, Lowestoft is indebted to the people of Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire who took care of our young citizens, enabling them to lead their future lives in the full freedom which the country fought so hard to maintain. Hopefully the panels will help preserve the memories of the significant event and the important role the host communities played. Town Councillor Andy Pearce said, Lowestoft Town Council is delighted to support the significant initiative. The next article is by former BBC TV correspondent Michael Cole and he puts together a number of short items uh, which give his take on stories making the news in the past month. Malta, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the NHS are unlikely trio but united forever by the award of the George Cross for gallantry. I have personal experience of all three and enthusiastically applaud them as worthy recipients of Britain's High Civilian Medal. The Queen's Birthday Honours rewarded the principal players in the pandemic battle, but the true heroes of the last 17 months have not been recognised. My award for resilience, fortitude and courage, day after day, goes to the millions of parents of young children who have managed to cope during an unprecedented emergency. I can only imagine the difficulty of caring for three small children in a small flat, keeping them happy, healthy and occupied while the life they have known is shut down. I won't suggest a mum's medal for fear of enraging the gender vigilantes, but the nation <laughs> owes more than gratitude to the unsung parents who just carried on. Children have lost an average of 61 days schooling and much else besides. When you are young, 17 months is a much more significant period of time than it is for adults and children don't have the experience to put the catastrophe that has blighted their young lives into context. 
Many schools have performed minor miracles in keeping contact with pupils, albeit without sport and other activities that constitute at least 50% of real education. The same cannot be said of universities. Too many have abandoned students to their own devices, leaving them to sink or swim, while still taking the annual £9,000 for tuition. Special help and extra consideration must now be given to every child who has lived through this crisis, and every parent who has put their children before themselves, never succumbing to despair. And finally, a great England manager... I don't, I don't know Gareth Southgate, but I had an enjoyable breakfast with him in Turin in 2010. This is still Michael Cole speaking. <laughs> I thought you'd perhaps not me. had an enjoyable meeting <laughs> <laughs> He was pleasant, polite, with a ready smile and bags of common sense. At the time, he was out of football management, working as a television commentator, shortly before joining the England set-up. When he compared himself to a father, intent on the success of his young players, not his own glory, I wondered why he had to endure a procession of homegrown underachievers, an Italian who never mastered English, and one strange Swede before finding a competent English manager who is also a decent man. <clears throat> Ipswich Town can rightly claim to have provided England's two finest football managers, Sir Alf Ramsey and Sir Bobby Robson. Despite the wretched defeat in the Euros final, Gareth Southgate is fit to share their podium. Now on to the 2022 World Cup and the next penalty shootout. And no, that's not a misprint. <laughs> <coughs> and the next one is entitled Fighting for Britain. The flag spelling out Nelson's famous signal... England expects that every man will do his duty, were once depicted over the entrance to the Trafalgar in Dover Court. I remembered that splendid pub sign when I read a letter from the Times, the other one, from Captain Richard Shannon, RN, of Stoke by Nayland. While England was in the flag vocabulary, Captain Shannon explained Britain was probably not, despite there being many Scots, Welsh and Irishmen in Nelson's fleet. When Nelson's second-in-command, Cuthbert Collingwood, saw the flags being hoisted, he remarked, I wish Nelson would make no more signals. We all understand what we have to do. But when he read the message, Collingwood promptly relayed it to his crew in HMS Royal Sovereign. They cheered before opening fire, 15 minutes before Nelson followed suit in HMS Victory. The two men first met as junior officers aboard the frigate HMS Lowestoff, spelled... T-O-F-F-E on the end. So ITV have had more variety. Uh, so he's still talking about the fact that he's worried about the BBC Look East and how will it fill its programmes if the pandemic abates. Look East has become the NHS daily show, almost every programme dominated by COVID. It's true, isn't it? Very true. It's a huge story, but ITV News Anglia covers it very well while still reflecting other aspects of East Anglian life, not all of them gloom and doom. I worked for both programmes and declare ITV's the best overall during the pandemic, and David Whitley, who was at the BBC East, is an excellent replacement for Jonathan Wills at Anglia. No hooligans at Wembley's first final. My father, then aged 15, went to the first FA Cup final at the newly built Wembley Stadium in 1923, along with 1,206 
uh, other people in an official attendance that the true figure may have been 300,000. There were no tickets. People paid at the turnstile, though some climbed over them, but there was no hooliganism or criminal damage. A white police horse called Billy carefully cleared the people from the pitch so that Bolton Wanderers could beat West Ham United 2-0, watched by a well-behaved crowd on the touchline. Those people had recently endured a terrible war. They knew the horror of violence. In a civil society where courtesy and respect were not just words, thuggery was not to be tolerated. The appalling scenes at the new Wembley that accompanied the Euros final show have how far we have show how far we have regressed as a nation in ninety eight years. My father told me there were ten other police horses ushering people off the pitch that day, but the newspapers wrote only about Billy because he stood out. Mm. <laughs> Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or find any difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We'd like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Telephone numbers mentioned in this edition are Berries and Edmunds Survey, telephone 01284 766258, Men's Shed, called Johnny Wood on 01473 345335, and Tony Rushmer about RAS Reg, telephone 07702. Five seven nine three eight two. Well, you start to be back again next week, so until then, from Joan, Sue, Harvey and Sue, it's Goodbye. Goodbye. It's listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio. Thank you.